for the biggest institutional investors in the world, they're never going to divest everything. There's problems everywhere. So what we want to do is move the whole of the investment community to a new norm, which is to be actively engaged around sustainability issues and accountable for the use of shareholder power, which they hold and a lot of it, to take us in a direction that's safe and sustainable for all. Now is the time to turn rage into action. Every fraction of the degree matters. Every voice can make a difference and every second counts. I wanted to panic. I wanted to act as if the house was on fire because it is. From the pandemic to climate change, going it alone is simply not an option. For those who have eyes to see, for those who have ears to listen, and for those who have a heart to feel, 1.5 is what we need to survive. The global financial system is a powerful beast that can be steered to support or stymie climate action. So how can responsible investors make sure their money is directed towards progressive investments instead of business as usual paradigms? We dig into a range of financial approaches with two guests who understand the nuances of this world and what it takes to navigate it. Welcome back to the Accelerating Climate Solutions podcast. I'm Stefan Jurik from the Foundation's platform F20. And I'm Ruth Richardson, former executive director of the Global Alliance for the Future of Food. This podcast is about uncovering the hard topics at the heart of the climate crisis debate. Together, we get to the bottom of what's holding back solutions. We're having these conversations ahead of COP27, which will be held this November in Egypt. It seems that every summit takes place against an increasingly grim backdrop of global crises. This year, government leaders must contend with war in Ukraine, rising energy and food prices, and the mounting debt attributed to the loss and damage caused by intensifying weather events. While these global discussions take place, there's another conversation underway. It's about the role shareholders and investment firms can actually have in combating the climate crisis. These days, environmentally minded investors face a dilemma, though. Many want to see the companies they invest in ramp up their focus on these three critical areas, the environmental, social and corporate governance, the ESG for that matter. And ethical investors are increasingly using those ESG criteria to assess the positive and negative impacts being made by a company. ESG were indeed an invested media darling, but are now subject also of a lot of criticism, rightfully so. Impact funds are still quite limited. So the question is that the investment community has where to invest or how to actually have an impact. And the investment community is divided on the best way to urge companies to adopt more sustainable strategies, more climate-friendly strategies. Right. And Stefan, there's two camps that have essentially emerged. Uh, the first is Camp Divest. Camp Divest argues that the best way to pressure a company to take climate action is to pull your investments and direct that money elsewhere. The second group is Camp Engagement. People in Camp Engagement believe in keeping their money invested and using their shareholder power to influence a company's climate commitments and strategic direction sort of from within. 
This is obviously a simple explanation of two different approaches that have a lot of nuance. It's not a simple thing, um, but just to make the point clear, our two guests are going to help us explore this issue further. Our first guest is Catherine Howarth, CEO, Share Action, a charity that works to improve corporate behavior on environmental, social, and governance issues. Welcome, Catherine. We're also joined by Asad Raymond, Executive Director of War on Want. His organization fights the root causes of poverty and human rights violations as part of the worldwide movement for global justice. Welcome, Asad. Before we dive into that discussion, we always start in our podcast, the conversation with one particular question. And knowing the two of you being very experienced in your work, being very experienced in climate activities and in uh, investment questions, the question to you is, if you could press a button and change one particular thing, what would it be? I suggest, Catherine, you go first. Great. Uh, well, thanks for giving me the first uh, go at that tricky question. Uh, I think the thing that has bugged me for so long is that our big capital markets, our big investment system is full of pension savings of working people all over the world. And the people that invest on their behalf, the boards that invest on their behalf, have legal obligations to invest in their best interests. But at the moment, those legal obligations are defined very narrowly as maximize the investment returns at all costs. And there's really no space in law for a more nuanced approach, which recognizes that to act in someone's best interest as an investor, you need to consider the environmental impacts, the social impacts that are created by investments that produce financial returns for them as well. And so we have a very problematic legal arrangement for the worldwide investment of people's retirement savings. Retirement savings are invested to create future security for people in their old age. And what's happening is that because of this profit at all costs legal construct, we're making the world more insecure for people. So it's not really in their best interest, the way things, so, so my sort of single thing that I would love to see change, and I remain optimistic after sort of 12 years of campaigning on this, that we'll get there one day, is that we no longer have a legal regime in the global investment community that really doesn't have any space to acknowledge the importance for each of us of social environmental outcomes. That makes a lot of sense to me as it addresses the overall question on finance, which is how to factor in externalities, how to factor in the, the true costs of um, investments. Um, but um, we will maybe come to that later. Um, Asad, if you could change one thing, if you could press a button and you know that would change one thing, what would it be from your end if you could change one thing, Asad? It's a very tricky question, right? When we need to change everything uh, within a very short period of time. Part of my brain is saying, you know, it's the regulations, binding treaties on businesses, corporations, make them liable for their climate impacts, human rights, etc. But I think fundamentally there is a, a missing piece of the jigsaw in terms of how we've constructed 
both our financial economy and then our political and legal construct around it that just that maintains this economic model. And the game changer to that, I think, is uh, the power of people. And so if there is one thing that I think dramatically makes a huge difference, it's uh, a movement of people that is global in nature, that is coalescing around a vision, but has a framework of political demands, including, you know, what remaking or reimagining a new global economy looks like in the face of this climate and ecological crisis, but also as a strategy for both building power and being able to effectively use power to be able to shape some of those outcomes. I think that, I would say, is probably the, the biggest change that could dramatically change across a number of different areas uh, simultaneously. Fantastic answers. Very challenging, both of them. <laughs> but I... Not easy to design the feature of that button, but okay, that makes a lot of sense. But uh, like you, Catherine, I remain hopeful that um, these things are possible. Let's just back up for a second, because um, it'd be great to kind of situate this conversation for our listeners in your actual work. So Asad, you were talking, for instance, about movements, power of the people, changing structures, you and your organization were on want advocate at the intersection of, of climate, racial, economic, and social justice. Can you just tell us a little bit more about your take on how the current financial system actually perpetuates those systems of oppression and intergenerational poverty before we kind of move more into the solutions and, and your big idea around movements? So I think if, you know, if we had a very long time, we could talk about the genesis of our economic system and you know and and our financial system and I, I would argue you have to trace it back to you know the the doctrine of discovery which lays the foundation for the for the exploitation and expropriation of land and resources and 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 of ultimately sacrificing people of the global south in that pursuit of profit and how it creates this logic which underpins and justifies a series of moments through history from slavery to colonialism to this moment which we're currently living in, which is we would probably all characterize as neoliberal capitalism, right? Where the pursuit of, uh, of profit has become the primary goal of all economic activity, where alongside of that, we've seen deregulation, we've seen the market being seen as the primary driver and server of, of our of our needs. We've seen the state slowly being pushed back. And we've seen, of course, privatization of, of critical uh, areas. And I for me, I think that that question helps us situate the financial system as it is. Now, some people, and I would say argue the system is broken. Because as Nicholas Stern, uh, the Sir Nicholas Stern, when he when he wrote the you know the economics of climate change, said you know the single greatest failure of the free market is climate change. I would argue it's not broken. This is exactly what it was set up to do. It's the inevitable outcome of a system that has pursued this. Uh, and now there are of course many arguments that you could maybe draw in those externalities. You could put safeguards in terms of the uh, from whether human rights safeguards. But I think when we think about the reality of this multiple crisis, 
not just in terms of climate, as in, you know, we have potentially less than five years before we breach the one and a half degree. We'll probably only have maybe another two decades before we cross the two degree threshold and what that means in consequences. The fact that we are in a world where half of that world is lives in poverty and a billion people still go hungry. Half the world doesn't have access to public services. That to me says that's an economic system that clearly has or isn't working because it's not a lack of either wealth. It's not a lack of technology. It's the fact that we've of course seen a distribution from the global South overwhelmingly to the global North and not just as a historic example. So obviously sometimes people look at that and say, well, surely yes, that happened under colonialism, like the, UK benefited from taking £45 trillion out of the Indian subcontinent alone during the British Raj. It drove British industrialization just as slavery did. But even since 1980, if we look at the flows of resources from the global south to the global north, I mean, it's been estimated that close to $2 trillion flows from the net flows from the south to the north, whether that's in terms of unsustainable debt repayments, profit, capital flows, illicit capital flows. So the, the, I think the, the construct in which we're operating at the moment, for me, is it's a systemic crisis of a financial system. Now, within that logic of that, of that system, of course, there's this primary thing, which is, of course, about the growth model. Now, once you take climate and inequality but adding planetary limits, I think there's a fundamental clash between that economic model and a model of sustainability of sufficiency. So I do not think that this model itself is uh, fixable. I was just going to say that I really appreciated the point about how um, we often talk about the system being broken and you're saying it's not broken, it's actually doing what it was meant to do. And I think that's a really important point because what I've often said is that we have built these systems, we have created them, they didn't just happen, they are no longer serving us or the planet, and so we have to actually deconstruct them and rebuild new systems. And that puts us in a in a really a place of agency, which a lot of people think that they're subject to systems, but no, we're agents in the design of systems and the functioning of systems. Um, and I think that's yeah, just a, for me a very powerful message that we can deconstruct these and reconstruct them in different ways. Um, so, Catherine, I'd love to go to you because um, you suggested in terms of your big idea, changing the legal regime, <laughs> talk about a system that um, perhaps is not serving us that we need to deconstruct and reconstruct. Um, but again, if we can just go backwards a little bit and talk a little bit about your organization, Share Action. Um, your organization believes that tackling cl climate change requires an overhaul of the financial system, and you've included the legal system in there. Um, can you just expand on that a little bit for our listeners in terms of, of what you focus on and, and what your work entails? I mean, the origins of the organization are, are very much kind of grassroots movement, and that continues to be a feature of what we do. So it was about acknowledging that millions of ordinary people who are very critical and uh, feel very unhappy with the status quo are nevertheless plugged in and are stakeholders in that system through their retirement savings and, and the pension system. Um, so we continue to work with people who are part of that as as pension savers and, and ensure that their voice is heard and that they are organized um, to challenge the way it works. But as an organization, we do a number of different things to try and catalyze change. 
One is that we do a lot of research on the biggest asset managers and insurance companies and banks across the world, and we rank them publicly on their sustainability performance. And we find that really very helpful because they're, they're, they're competitors across those fields and actually public rankings of these institutions really gets focus on the issues that you assess them against. Uh, so we're just about to bring a new global ranking of the largest 70 asset management companies across the world um, to, uh, to publish that. And judging by what happened last time, for example, last time for the first time we evaluated those fund managers on how they address biodiversity um, risks and impacts. And at the time, three years ago, none of the big fund managers, or hardly any, it was like a handful out of the out of the largest 70, were had a serious um approach to biodiversity and were systematically building that into investment decisions. And three years on, for a number of different reasons, but I think partly because we we publicized that and it was very widely um covered in the global financial media. There's been huge progress. I mean, I'm not saying that those farm managers are doing everything they could do, but um, those rankings really do catalyze change. And now there isn't a large fund manager out there that doesn't at least um, pay lip service to the need to address biodiversity concerns in, in, as part of investment process. So that's one thing we do is kind of research and rankings and um, addressing kind of what is best practice in the different parts of the financial industry and really pushing for it. The other thing we do is shareholder activism, which is captured in our name. So we purchase shares in companies that are really problematic and we build, build coalitions of committed, responsible investors in the pensions industry, in foundation space, in asset management, and also individuals who hold shares to apply pressure for very specific solutions. So we've done loads of work, shareholder activism, taking on the banking sector around the banks financing fossil fuels. Um, had some really great successes um, in that space, but also in food systems, we've had um, shareholder resolutions at Tesco, which is the largest retailer in the UK, and, more, and then this year at Unilever, um, which is one of the absolutely global giants in, 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 in uh, food manufacturing, pushing for both of those companies to seriously focus on health as part of their overall ESG story, which they were conveniently sort of putting quite far down below environmental factors. Um, at, and... And, 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 you know, really, really applying shareholder pressure for action and change in the corporate community. Um, and then the third thing that we do is push for financial regulatory change. So the rules of the system really matter. Uh, it's it's very, very important that investors are obliged in law to uh, report what they do, report their environmental and social impacts. Uh, I think it's very important that they should have to consult their end investors, so the ordinary people whose money they look after, at the moment, most of the time have no voice or uh, opportunity to express their values in the system. They're just told, well, we're looking after you. Uh, don't you worry, uh, you little people. Um, we're the experts in finance. We'll look after. So there's there's no democracy in the system. So that's one of the things we're pushing for in terms of regulatory change. So yeah, we focus on the rules of the road. And uh, we've had some good success there too, uh, but there's far, far more needed. And I think if I had to point, again, that's one of the reasons I highlighted the one change I'd really like to see is changes in legal requirements on large investing organizations that look after other people's money. 
if they weren't, you know, just in law uh, required to maximize profits over any other consideration, we'd be in quite a different world. Many thanks for this, Catherine. And I've been always wanting to ask you that question. And I think, and I come to that in a, in a second, but we basically just established that in a way we have to rebuild the system, but we don't have the time to land the plane, change the parts, rebuild the plane, and then start flying again. But we have to change the parts while flying. We have to change the plane while flying at the moment. So this actually could be a way towards changing those parts that don't work in our operating system, obviously. My question that, I, that I've been always wanting to ask you is, if, you know, would you suggest to divest or no, you're investing or you're suggesting um, to people, no, 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 invest and become active shareholders. But you wouldn't necessarily recommend this to me, I guess, not having large funds to invest that would somehow, you know, justify a certain voice in that big company. Now, if you have like, you know, investor companies like Engine Number One investing large scale into Exxon, they can possibly change board members at the company Exxon, but I couldn't probably. So is there a benchmark from where you would say, oh, you rather divest and go somewhere else to impact funds or, you know, to certain ESG funds or so? Or are you saying, generally speaking, divesting is um, not a good thing, stay actively involved and use your shareholder power? Where's the benchmark? So, look, it depends what you've got the time and energy for. So uh, if you haven't got much, then divest, because it's definitely better to be out of those companies than to be silently invested and effectively supporting them and giving your tacit support. On the other hand, companies with problems, sustainability uh, impacts, just love it. When everyone who has a problem with the way they operate divests and there's no one left to nag them. So, you know, there's a bit of the other needed, definitely, which is that we stay engaged and we challenge the boards of directors that they don't have, let's say, a low carbon transition plan and you vote against them. And, you you know, if you have the resources, you actually file a proposal that the company should publish a low carbon transition plan, just to give an example. So we are pro divestment and pro engagement. And we're we're the first to admit that a lot of institutional investors that say, no, 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 we won't do divestment. We do engagement, but then they actually do no engagement. (laughs) They just sit around doing nothing and letting the status quo continue. That's definitely a big problem, but it, it is really important in all systems that you have accountability and shareholders are in a very powerful position to to demand accountability of boards of directors. And so, yeah, we really focus on share action, on pushing institutional investors to be active rather than passive um, in respect of the companies in their portfolios to challenge companies to support actively the transitions that we need, whether it's, you know, away from agricultural systems that are, you know, poisoning um, and uh, and polluting the world, or it's energy systems that are doing the same. And these companies do go on in their ordinary business. If you divest, they still, they still keep going. 
So, so it is really important that there are active investors that challenge. And it's, you know, ultimately, I think for, for maybe for ordinary people or maybe for small foundations, divestment makes a lot of sense. For the biggest institutional investors in the world, they're never going to divest everything. There's problems everywhere. So what we want to do is move the whole of the investment community to a new norm, which is to be actively engaged around sustainability issues and accountable for the use of shareholder power, which they hold and a lot of it, to take us in a direction that's safe and sustainable for all. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Thanks. And turning to Asad, Warren Want holds UK-based companies to account for their destructive operations and advocates for bold responses to the ecological crisis. When it comes to this approach, like, could you could you just share a little bit of your insights? Like, you know, what's been most successful in your approach, holding big companies really accountable? I guess many of us would like to do. What's your experience with what works? It very much depends on what you're doing and what the exact issue is. So I think there is a dialectic between, you know, the reform, the the kind of change agenda and then the reshaping agenda or trend. Now, you know, as War on One, we work with many frontline communities and social movements all around the world. So how we engage with corporations, particularly recognizing the specific role that the UK has, second biggest financial center in the world, metal, second biggest metal exchange in the world, uh, fifth richest economy, et cetera, et cetera. And it's And its place within the global financial economy makes it a very, very important arena in which to intervene. And often our movements on the ground are resisting the actions of UK-based corporations that might be mining, extractive, uh, companies involved in industrial agriculture, deforestation, etc. They have human rights impacts in terms of, as we know, environmental defenders being murdered and uh, around the world, or it might be about their actions in terms of poisoning land, communities, displacement, all of those things. And we work specifically with those communities. First of all, actually gathering the evidence of from our. So that is a very, very important part of what we do and being evidence-based. Then I think it's thinking about the strategies of resist and expose. And part of our work is about exposing, therefore, these brands who who may hide behind labels of sustainability, might have nice, glossy CSR reports, etc. but the reality of their business model continues the same. Or they've created business models which are, of course, opaque. So they will say it's nothing to do with us, but of course, uh, second or third hand down the down the supply chain, it's still their connection with that with that particular uh, business model. We see that often within the garment sector, and we do that, of course, media, but also doing as Catherine said. You know, we've historically uh, turned up to AGMs, uh, shareholders, and and with those communities, and try to intervene directly there to shape the policies and put specific demands on those corporations around both do no more harm, compensate those communities, but also then thinking about what is the longer term systemic change we need, either within that particular company or within that sector, um, which is why we work a lot, for example, on trade rules, because we recognize that trade rules are an intrinsic part of how these corporations operate. So currently, for example, we are running a campaign around what is called the ISDS, the Investor State Dispute Settlement Court, which you know allows these corporations incredible power, even if 
our communities on the ground, their democratic governments decide they don't want to uh, allow these companies to be able to extract or, or frack or, or poison their land. These companies now sue these governments for lost profits. And we, so what we try and do is look at the system as a whole and think of where are the vulnerabilities and where could we best, as people here in the global north, put pressure. But recognize that, of course, that, that these are important measures because they are about immediate harm. But we also have to have a, have a broader agenda, which is how do we transform our, our, the corporate model as a whole so that it does meet those ecological and climate as well as inequality criteria. So I'm, I'm hearing you both appreciate the kind of investment divestment strategies. However, if it's fair to say, my sense is that each of your organizations maybe has a tendency towards one or the other. So Assad, I think we're on want, you know, you've engaged in boycotts, divestment, sanctions, et cetera. And Catherine, you've talked about engagement and shareholder activism. Um, so I think the question I want to ask both of you, just to dig into this a little bit deeper is, what are the risks of both those strategies? What are the risks to in divestment strategies? What are the risks in engaging in investment strategies? Maybe, Asad, I can start with you just to parse that out a little bit for us, and then I'd love to hear your thoughts, Catherine. The question of boycotts, divestment, sanctions, you know, uh, are such an intrinsic part of social movements because ultimately, as citizens, they're often the only tool we have Right from an ethical, moral, political position, particularly if our governments or corporations continue to ignore the wishes of large parts of people. So that's why it's used as a tool in the campaign against apartheid in South Africa, uh, in Israel, in many, many, many different uh, places. And it was picked up, particularly in climate, where people looked to the fossil fuel industry and said, well, our strategy must be divest. And absolutely, this is a fundamental sector of our economy, which we know has to be transitioned down. It has to be done it fairly and equitably. It has to be done in a way that protects the workers in those communities and recognising the disproportionate impacts of that the fossil fuel industry has between the global north and the global south. But what was often missing, I think, in terms of that conversation was, you know, how, what are, what are, where are we investing? What is the alternative we actually want to try and build then? And, and I think often... The, it felt like that the only answer was if we divest, this, this sector is going to stop. Actually, it's not, and it hasn't, no matter what our divestment campaigns have been, however successful they've been, they're still investing over $100 million every single day in, in expansion of fossil fuels. You look at the fossil fuel industry, it's all of its plans basically say there is no declining fossil fuel. In fact, they're expanding. We know that the richest countries in, in the world, the European Union, the UK, United States, Canada, Australia, are all planning massive carbon expansions of new oil and gas, uh, despite what the International Energy Association has said, which is you can have no more fossil fuel expansion if you want to limit temperatures to two degrees, let alone one and a half degree. So there is a disconnect between, I think, a sector of our economy where you are trying to actually close it down and therefore is your strategy of just divest enough? So your divestion, that divest strategy, I think is more of as a political tool to build political consciousness, to build awareness and to allow move, your movement or your campaign to have a target. So it's simply not about the fossil fuel industry being better at being 
a petrochemical or a fossil fuel company. So it's a different logic. So I think we have to think about that strategy depending on what sector of the economy we're we're talking about. Super interesting. Catherine, what about for you? What are sort of the risks associated with each of those strategies? Well, I, I, I would uh, echo a lot of what Asada said. I mean, I think that the fundamental risk of both strategies is that they turn out to be fundamentally ineffective in achieving the objective, which is rapid decarbonization of our global economy. I think the there's slightly different aspects to it. So I think, uh, by the way, I think I think one of the risks is, uh, uh, of all of this is that we get we kid ourselves that this kind of activism in the in the finance system can be the be all and end all, which it absolutely certainly can't be. I think it can play a really really key role in leading the way in different ways. So I think on the divestment side, it can it can play a role in delegitimizing certain industries. And that's that's something that the divestment movement's done in a very effective way. Uh, on the engagement side, I think it, it can have significant impacts on certain target companies from time to time, which kind of will illustrate that these companies absolutely can move. Um, but all of it uh, should kind of lead the way and create pathways towards regulatory change and ultimately a kind of not just a sort of public and investor withdrawal of consent but um a government withdrawal of consent from these industries and 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 indeed on the divestment side it's not enough to divest but you actually do we we need a huge ramp up in, of investment in um in clean because there's still uh, lots of people across the world that are energy insecure and it's you know, for their quality of life and for meeting other sustainable development goals, uh, we need lots and lots of, of, of clean green energy. Now, on a, a really positive note, you know, the costs of clean energy have been falling dramatically and that we are seeing a huge wave of, of investment in many regions of the world. And uh, clean energy is super cost competitive now. But of course, there are these incumbent industries with their financial interests. They're, they're very actively lobbying to slow down the pace of transition. So there's there's lots of challenges with with all of these strategies. And there's a lot of, I think, ultimately, the, the, the challenge is to ensure that we don't kid ourselves that they're in any way going to be a complete solution, either of them. If I may come in just briefly, and this is not a naive question, I suppose, but when we're acknowledging that divestment has an impact, active shareholdership has an impact, that ultimately regulatory changes are needed to really change the money flows and you know change investments. I'm still wondering, uh, and Catherine, you just said, you know, it's still not the case that the best option is the biggest choice from investors. It's not that clean energy or renewable energy has been sort of really been upscaled at the moment, although it is in many cases actually even the cheapest option to to, to generate energy. If it if it's about generating energy, then renewable actually can actually really deliver. What is it that companies? And corporates take seriously after all, or probably most seriously after all. We've just seen in Germany, for example, when the court case was won in terms of the court judging that there is a right for, for a future, for future generations, when this court case decision um, was concluded, then suddenly the government could change the climate change law overnight. That took campaigners for years to try to 
change and it didn't work. So, of course, climate litigation ultimately helps as well. But what is it that really is sort of the, the big thing that corporates take more seriously than anything else? Profit. Profit. Well, right. that's, that's the only yeah. thing they take seriously. <laughs> I mean, we, let's not kid ourselves. I mean, I think it's a serious question. We shouldn't kid ourselves that the system we've created, which has got this logic of, of profit, is willing and able to transition away from that logic. Right? That's why you see both an expansion of renewable energy around the world and an expansion of fossil fuel energy simultaneously. Yet half the world still doesn't have access to electricity or clean cooking. But that would lead us back to policy change, actually, because, uh, you know, um, you can only make money if it works according to the existing laws. And if the law says, no, you have, you know, if you price in externalized costs by law, then um, fossil fuel investments become not very beneficial, become a problem. And then, you know, profits are being harvested at, at the renewable side. So that will bring us back then to policies, ultimately, right? If it's about profits. Policy is really, really key, but I, I'm probably not quite so much of an anti-capitalist, as I said, but because um, I, I actually think it's really works to harness the entrepreneurial spirit in achieving this transition. But it absolutely won't happen without a policy framework that creates appropriate incentives, um, helps shut down uh, fossil fuels. I think, you know, when I talk about policy and the sort of change we need, we need radical transparency around corporate lobbying, which is a, a huge poison in the system. And I mean, there's wonderful NGOs like Influence Map that are doing a brilliant job of tracking the work, uh, the, the, the policy activity of a wide range of high carbon industries who are really desperately trying to slow down this transition because there are other positive forces pulling in the opposite direction. Because it does make sense to uh, invest in green energy now uh, in many, many places all across the world. And I actually think it's starting to happen. It's just a question of whether it's happening fast enough uh, and whether we've got all of the right things aligned um, as we need them. But, you know, investors are getting behind this. It's not like an all, all the bad news story. Far from it. There's, there's, there's quite big change afoot. And it partly is because there's a financial logic for, for them, but it's also because there's been fantastic campaigning to make investors publicly commit to change. Now, it's a problem when they publicly commit to change and then they realize that actually they still can't make any profits out of it because, as Assad says, they're sort of profit-driven organizations. But if you can harness things and, move, and align things in the right direction, well, I, I remain of the view that we need uh, private enterprise to achieve the transition at the scale uh, that's required at the pace that's required. I know, Ruth, you have a question as well, but just I want to say I love the answer, profits. And I think it's probably not even a bad thing because you didn't say gross. You didn't say gross based on, ex on externalities, on outsourcing or on externalizing internalized costs. You can also make profits with a quite sustainable renewable business, for example. So maybe the dynamic of generating profits can be used for the good. Asad, you are just taking the deep breaths. Go on. <laughs> we should not kid ourselves, right? Now, if you look at fossil fuels to renewables simply through the lens of carbon, you can say, okay, that's possible to have a transition. Is it possible to have a transition to tackle energy poverty? 
Probably not. You would have to maintain certain levels of energy poverty because there's no profitability in that. You, unless you had state intervention in terms of making energy a fundamental right, and then the investment from the state to, to to deploy that. But once you start thinking from a planetary point of view, you actually recognize we cannot switch a fossil fuel economy to renewables because we're going to triple the amount of material use that we have. We're already breaching five of our planetary limits. Then you have to, it's a very, very different conversation about what kind of economy happens in a moment where you're not just thinking carbon and you're not just thinking inequality, but you're thinking planetary limits. And actually in that, I, it's not ideological to be anti-capitalist. It's simply science. That logic cannot deliver in the face of these crises. So you have to have a different way of organizing a global economy and how we are as people that has to be about sufficiency, cooperation, solidarity. So it wouldn't be, for example, telling a lie to the car industry, don't worry, switch from fossil fuels to electric batteries, because the reality is that that's not possible. It is not possible to transition the whole of our diesel car engines to electric batteries, unless we are willing to accept that we're going to devastate large parts of the global south. Well, if we don't accept that logic, then it lends us to saying, should we be thinking about mass public transport? Well, who can provide that? That's the state. How do we make sure we reconfigure our cities so people work and live closer? So it's not about taking profit into it. When I use the word profit, I take it as a the logic of the extraction experience and exploitation of people and resources to be made to that. There is a role for the private sector, without a doubt, but this is a problem of the global commons and capital cannot solve it. So I'd love to pivot a little bit to put a greater focus on where there might be solutions and where we're maybe seeing some hope. Uh, the Global Alliance for the Future of Food, where I've worked for the last 10 years, has a project called Beacons of Hope. And we try to hold up um, examples of food system transformation that are actually showing promise and shining a light on those and trying to figure out how to accelerate that pro progress. Uh, so Asad, do you see any beacons of hope? Um, do you see any bright lights um, that can be supported and that can be accelerated to try to drive the transition that you think we need? Well, absolutely. And I think if you look around the world, there are incredible amounts of places we can look at hope. We can look at hope on a national level and say, it's incredible that you have in a country which has been built on hydrocarbons and as, a, as one of the worst human rights records, Colombia, you have now a government that has said climate and inequality are going to go hand in hand. We're going to shift away from an extractivist logic. You can say Chile, which has been one of the centers of mining and extraction, an incredible movement of people that brought trade unions, environmentalists, feminists, students together and said, we want to reimagine what our country's for, what our economy's for. Uh, there are that those scale. And then there are examples, as you quite rightly said, we work with many partners and frontline communities who are saying, we don't, if we're moving away from fossil fuels, that means also thinking about what does sustainable agriculture, agroecology look like? How do we move away from chemical fertilizers? What are the initiatives that we need to put in to make, you know, sort of a sustainable fertilizers, organic ones? How do we share that knowledge? What about seeds? All of these things are happening all over the world. The question is in terms of, are they sufficient in scale 
to meet this challenge? And do they have the ability to be able to challenge the, the framework we have in terms of legal frameworks that prevent these alternatives becoming realities? So I want to just give you one example. Like in Sri Lanka, you know, you in the last year, for example, you have seen a country which has had this multiple crisis come debt, repayments, climate impacts, huge inequality, cost of living crisis, government, authoritarian, said to people, eat less. A huge uh, protest of people saying, we want to have a, a very, very different economy and raised all those, etc. cetera. Um, and that government, you know, fell and a new government came in place. And the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, has told that government, well, the only way you are going to get another loan from us is if you privatize your economy, your utilities, you weaken your labor and environmental standards, all the things that we know are needed in terms of regulatory. So what we have is uh, alternatives being built, and then the way we've constructed our global financial economy and its rules from taxation to trade rules to the IMF, preventing those. So that's a fundamental change at a global level as well as a at a national level needs to take place. That's a beautiful way to bring back the two points you guys made at the very beginning, which is the connection of legal frameworks and social movements. <laughs> um, so thank you for that. Catherine, what about for you? Um, do you have beacons of hope, bright lights? Um, how can we accelerate progress? Absolutely. So I feel very lucky to have worked in the in the field that I've been in for the last 15 years in, in kind of people-powered shareholder activism, because it's actually been a, a a really dynamic space where we've been very experimental and we've 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 tried out a lot of campaigns and we've won some real victories and every time i think the great thing with with winning a campaign whether it's you know taking on one of the world's largest food companies or whether it's taking on one of the world's largest banks is that first of all you learn a lot along the way about how the system works because you can you can i think you can understand the system in, in in theory but when you prod a real live institution of human beings that are a large corporate entity um you you learn a lot about how how it really works but each campaign kind of creates more hope uh, as well that that you can you can build uh yet further campaigning and I feel like one of the things when I look back what we've tried to be is just a bit more ambitious every year with what we've done um I keep trying to be experimental and pushing ourselves so uh, that does keep me hopeful I have to say and then I'm seeing you know change like a few years ago you know five or six years ago financial regulation had literally no environmental lens on it whatsoever um and now for example, in the UK, our Financial Conduct Authority, which is our most powerful financial regulator, has a director for environmental, social and governance affairs. Um, I know I've got to know him fairly well because he used to work in the asset management industry and things are really changing. So like the people that are responsible for day to day oversight and supervision of all of our biggest banks and asset managers and insurance companies are required now as part of their job uh, to, to look at the environmental and social performance of these institutions, which is a total transformation from a few years ago. Now, there's far further to go. I, you know, it's just the beginning of a process. But to even acknowledge inside our system of financial regulation and supervision that uh, these financial institutions have, you know, huge impact on the world and produce 
externalities that affect us all. And for that to be part of the mandate of the people that keep an eye on them as public servants, that's a really good development. So that there is, um, there's lots of little beacons of hope in the work that I do. And then ultimately, just to come back to something you said at the very beginning, Ruth, which is, this is a man-made system. Finance is utterly a man-made system and we can unmake it <laughs> and redesign it. And we just have to be very determined that that happens. It's a very big and intimidating system. And a lot of people are just sort of sucked into thinking that uh, it's too big to change. But I think it's too big and too problematic to carry on the way it is. And what's really important is that civil society is tooled up and involved in, in thinking about the redesign, pushing for it and operating really smart coalitions that not just, you know, mobilise people in civil society and, 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 and citizens, but actually build bridges into institutions like foundations that have assets and are mission driven and yet are kind of probably honestly sitting in a bit of an ambiguous position as far as, you know, they, they, they want to generate income so they can create grants and they're not necessarily rocking the boat. But actually, when they're invited by partners in civil society to be part of the solution and part of the change, uh, I'm and that's another beacon of hope. I think the, the growing engagement and thinking and sophistication of thinking in the foundation world about sustainable finances is really quite positive. What I could also add and thanks for this actually quite you know from both of you i wouldn't say optimistic but quite detailed outlook and there are indeed quite a few positive stories that we can build on that weren't there before and what i can only say from the discussions that we have with the foundations and with their you know um, potential investment strategies is that investors are really not interested in any fake labels anymore. They're really not. They really want to invest correctly. And the problem is that in terms of the supply of decent investment opportunity, we have um, still a way to go because there's, um, you know, it's not easy to invest in a credible, sustainable way. Um, but what I can say is nobody's interested in any fake versions. At, at least I would say the majority is not interested. There might still be a few who think, you know, with offsetting, with easy offsetting, they can just get the deal done. But the majority really is interested in serious investment opportunities and serious ways of not doing harm. So that's what I can say. I also wanted, or we also wanted to get a very, very quick assessment from your end with regard to the UN climate summits. Um, obviously, there's a lot expectation, again, on UN climate summit. Both of you have been on climate summits. I said you've been to many climate summits already. Expectations are um, not as positive as we've just um, said in terms of other positive developments. Developments, but you have a very quick brief say on upcoming COP27? Sure. I, I, and I think we are in a period which we could say is optimistic in the sense that we've moved from climate denialism. I think the problem is we've moved into mitigation denialism, right? That actually everybody talks about, we recognize the crisis, but the does very little then to actually address it. And I think that's the, one of the huge problems we've seen now in the UNFCCC. So our current pledges are leading us to a warming of 2.7 degrees. I mean, that's just catastrophic. And I, I want to just be somber and sober about what that means in terms of 
Uh, even the UN's own standing committee on finance said that developing countries would need between five and ten trillion dollars to address just 30% of the cost and needs of those pledges. And this is not the cost of adaptation, because we've already re- reached what the IPCC has said is pretty much the hard limits of adaptation. And it's not the cost of the loss and damages we're seeing, like we're seeing in my home country of Pakistan, with 33 million people displaced, $30 billion uh, in damages. And when we think about that and then think, well, rich countries have not even been able to meet the 100 billion climate pledge that they made in uh, 2009, of which only a third so far has been in new and additional grants. The rest is in debt-creating loans. That the cost of adaptation now is being estimated between 300 and 550 billion by unit. Uh, the scale of what is needed and where the discussion is is still so far apart. I mean, it really is. So I would just end by saying, that, again, it's, if you look at what the IPCC report said, the Working Group 3, which I think is an incredible report on, on impacts, on vulnerabilities, and on, 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 on what needs to happen, there is a, a lot there that says you cannot win on climate without winning on inequality. That's simply looking at the structures are key. The, the, these are the structures that have created these vulnerabilities. And it sends a one very, very key message in there. It says the only hope for change lies with people. Our, our governments and corporations are failing. It's only people, our collective presence of people, that will shift this dynamic. And I think that realisation that this is not going to be solved inside the the halls of the UNFCCC, it's going to be solved in terms of the political pressure that changes the dynamic of those COP, is probably the most important lesson that all of us need to take. Okay, um, Catherine, any uh, outlook, very brief outlook on the COP at this stage? I'm not holding my breath for this particular COP, but it may well be that some very good work gets done there. I basically agree that the actions outside mostly. I certainly think that um, people power pressure is critical to moving companies and governments uh, where we need them to move. The fact that the Egyptian government is a highly authoritarian state that doesn't allow uh, its citizens to articulate their views most of the time on, on anything doesn't make me feel that it's you know a, a particularly promising host for a gathering that would ultimately gain legitimacy from public engagement and, and public pressure. Uh, so, but look, I mean, a, a, an important development at the COP last year was the commitments, and I, I'm perfectly cynical about many of them as other people are, but ultimately there were huge commitments made by different financial institutions. And what is important at this COP is that those institutions are held accountable and there's a, there's there's real visibility on the progress that's being made and and that's happened that needs to happen week in and week out um year in and year out uh cop or no cop and and it is it is a positive that finance has been brought within the orbit of that process because finance has a role to play i believe and absolutely needs to be held accountable and i hope that a good deal of that happens at the cop this year on, on the more technical side of, of, of the COP, uh, look, you know, in, in COP26, you know, 85% of the pop world's population demanded a loss and damage facility, saying that the reality of the crisis is already here. It's overwhelming our country's abilities. Now, that was really brushed aside 
by rich countries and it was pushed into the long grass. It will come up again. There will be a real fight about whether loss and damage is anything more than just a technical body. Does it have the finances to actually provide that real support? That is going to be key. There's going to be a big discussion around a global goal and adaptation that has the finance technology. And, and really next year, there'll be a global stock take. It'll be an opportunity for us to see all across, from country pledges to finance to the technology, how far off we are from what was being promised of the, under the 1.5, but also hopefully ramp up the scale of ambition that needs to happen, um, primarily with the richest countries who are most responsible. But uh, uh, so uh, it's the window is not shut, and it, I don't think will is ever a moment that we're going to lose. I think it's more a question of how much harm are we allowing to happen to our ecosystems and to people. And the global stock tech definitely is one that doesn't only apply to the emission trajectories of the member countries of the UN, but also to the UN process itself, at least to the uh, UN climate process. Having been to COP1 now, seeing at COP27 where we are at, there is definitely a lot of good outcomes, but also you know, not the political progress that we wanted to see. I guess it's my role now to briefly close this, and there's no way of summarizing this dense and really excellent conversation. Sorry for that. But uh, obviously, you know, the point of departure um, was that we need to rebuild the system. And I think we both, or we all agreed in a way that rebuilding the system or rebuilding the plane while flying is challenging. So that we, you know, we can't unfortunately just land the plane and, as we said, and then rebuild it and take off again. So, um, we need to look into what works and divestment works as shareholder activism does. And the benchmark is not so much the money you invest or you divest, but the benchmark is the level of time that you give it to it to actually raise your voice very actively in that. And th I think that that point was very well taken. Obviously, the system that we need to rebuild needs to be a system that is not externalizing costs of environmental pollution, um, but that really factors in all costs. We've actually had a great uh, podcast episode on that true cost accounting here, which was really going to the roots of the problem that we've also discussed. So the, the system change that we are foreseeing needs to definitely factor in those externalities, and that would actually really be a game changer. I would say we just close here Big thanks to the two of you, Asad and Catherine, for the time that you put into. Ruth, anything from your end you would like to remark? Just Catherine, Asad, thank you for a fantastic discussion. And to our listeners, we'd love to hear what your main takeaways are. So please let us know. Everyone who's listening, we'd love to continue the conversation online. Follow us on Twitter and on LinkedIn. Uh, spread the word about uh, the podcast. And of course, share your insight and share your takeaways from this conversation. We are really looking forward to receiving them. Many thanks, everyone. This was Stefan Schurich from the Foundations Platform F20. And I'm Ruth Richardson from Global Alliance for the Future of Food. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, everyone.